Power Hour. What a warm welcome to you. It's the 17th of January, Monday. I'm Alec Hogan. With me in studio here in Johannesburg, Michael Apple, and in our virtual studio, Justin Rowe, Roberts, and Nadia Swat. Well, Michael, I had the first of a series of interviews today with advocate Erin Richards. She's uh, quite an activist. She mm. took on the command council of the COVID uh, grouping and well for her troubles she got uh, quite heavily criticized but she certainly is a uh, an articulate and a, a very deep thinking advocate we're going to be talking all about the constitution so we've got a introduction later in the program to the series that we're going to be doing over many weeks from here it's in uh, partly it, it fits really well because the second half of the show is going to be Erin Richards and Leon Schreiber from the Democratic Alliance, who you spoke to. Yeah, that's, that's right. W- the influence of politicians on the judiciary. And uh, Dr. Leon Schreiber, the public service and, and administration uh, shadow minister in the, the official opposition, the DA, they want the president dragged before the courts for lying to South Africa. It's, it's something that they're going to need to prove, and they believe they have the minutes and the ammunition to be able to take this to court. So with so much going on in politics nowadays, who knows who to believe? Erin's view, of course, is, sorry, not of course, but her view is that be careful when you attack the judiciary, even if it is uh, through this, these allegations that the ANC's cater deployment a committee appointed a whole bunch of judges because once you destroy the judiciary, you really don't have anything left. So she's she's waving a flag there at Helen Zilla and others. You, Justin, had an interview with South Africa's top fund manager. That's correct. Counterpoint Value Fund Manager Pitt Fillion. He shares all the insights over the festive period, what's happening in the markets, and he's really the red-hot inform asset manager at the moment, Alec. He generated a return of 44% in the Counterpoint Value Fund in 2021, and he's at a strong start to 2022. So you really want to be listening to what Pitt Fillion has to say at the moment. If only we'd taken the business portfolio and put it all into Pitt Fillion's fund, I think we'd, be, we'd have all been smiling a little broader now. However... Pete will be in the Drakensberg at the Biz News Investment Conference from the 1st to the 4th of March. So that's another good reason to join us then. Coming up just after the news and markets is a very South African story from our partners at the Financial Times of London. They take a close look at Bain and what this multinational did in the state capture story. So plenty coming up for you in the program tonight. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Nadia Swart has got the news headlines. The Commission for Gender Equality has warned companies against introducing mandatory vaccination policies, which it says risks infringing the constitutional rights of workers. The Chapter 9 body raised concerns around a recent study that found that some COVID-19 vaccines may cause a small change to the menstrual cycle length, but that this change is temporary. While the Commission said it supported the goal of reaching herd immunity, it said that this should not be achieved by trampling the basic human rights that are enshrined in the Constitution. The Commission is also calling for institutions of higher learning 
including universities, to afford the same respect to students and workers who may not wish to vaccinate. Business chambers and even provincial governments are heading the way of legal action against ESCOM's plans to hike electricity prices by 20.5% this year. Business chambers in Nelson Mandela Bay and Peter Marisburg have filed papers against the NERSA methodology that ESCOM uses to determine its price increases. A showdown looms as businesses plan to fight municipalities who have carte blanche over how much to charge over and above ESCOM's required increase, while the South African Local Government Association looks to remove choice from the equation, seeking an order giving municipalities exclusive right to distribute electricity. Tourism Minister Lindiwe Sisulu has tripled down in her tirade against South Africa's constitution, pinning a third column criticizing the highest rule of law in the country. Sisulu's critics have widely condemned her position, with many high-profile politicians and analysts pointing out that her timing is suspect, given that 2022 is an ANC election year. The ANC is expected to meet this week, where Sisulu's columns are likely to be discussed. Justin, back to you for the market report. The JSC All Share Index was up at 75,600. In the currency markets, the rand was largely flat against all the major currencies to 15 rand 44 cents to the dollar, 21 rand and 7 cents to the pound, and 17 rand and 61 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,819 an ounce. The Kruger rand will put you back approximately 29,500 rand. Brent crude is up, trading at $86.10 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 660,000 rand per coin. In the financial news, Tongard whistleblower David Willem has called for a postponement in tomorrow's extra- extraordinary general meeting where the business will look to pass resolutions to increase shares in issue by 33-fold in a highly dilutive rights issue. The article is a must-read for all Tongard shareholders and can be found on biznews.com. This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Monday, January 17th, and this is your FT News Briefing. We'll start today's show with a scoop about pension money, private equity, and Israeli spyware. Investors that have for a long time been able to hide behind, you know, not disclosing their involvement in this messy situation will now have to be sort of held accountable for it. And global management consultants have been under fire for aiding state corruption. The latest is Bain & Company for its role in a scandal in South Africa. The FT's Joseph Cottrell will tell us about that. And new data on European car sales shows electric moving ahead of diesel. I'm Joanna Gao, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The FT has learned that pension money from the UK's largest energy supplier was used to buy an Israeli spyware maker that's blacklisted by the US. The parent company of British Gas used retirement funds to become a major investor in a private equity fund. This fund then bought a majority stake in the Israeli company called NSO. The FT's private capital correspondent, Kay Wiggins, broke the story, and she reminds us why NSO is so controversial. NSO is an Israeli company that makes cyber weapons, essentially, so spyware that can be used to hack phones. And so that has been found on the phones of human rights activists and journalists. So NSO itself has now been put on a trade blacklist by the U.S. Department of Commerce, 
which says that there's evidence that it has supplied its spyware to foreign governments, which had then used that to maliciously target people ranging from journalists to government officials to activists, embassy workers, academics. And NSO is also being sued by two of the biggest U.S. tech companies, right? So WhatsApp and Apple are both also suing NSO Group. Apple saying it wants to block it from using its products. And WhatsApp saying that NSO exploited a vulnerability in the the WhatsApp system to deliver this spyware to people's phones. So we should make clear that NSO says this was a misuse of its product and has zero tolerance for the use of its cyber tools to monitor dissidents or activists or journalists. But Kate, what about British Gas, or rather its parent company, which is Centrica? Could Centrica have known what its pension money was being used for when the private equity fund bought NSO in 2019? Centrica couldn't have known at the time of committing the money that that's what it was going to be used for, because the nature of a private equity fund is you commit money to a pool, and then the people who run that private equity fund go on and make decisions about how to invest it. So Centrica wouldn't have known at the time that that's what would be done with its money. But they certainly would have known when NSO was purchased that that was what had happened. So Kay, at this point, can Centrica take its investment out of NSO? Not very easily, I think is the short way of answering that question. (laughs) The slightly longer version is the private equity fund behind this investment has itself been through a lot of turmoil in the past year. So the founders of that fund have been removed from their role in controlling it, which is a highly unusual step in the world of private equity funds. And so a US consultancy firm is now running the funds with a mandate to sell the companies that it owns and try and return some cash to investors. So it's very much uncertain at the moment how much money Centrica and all of the other pension funds and other investors will end up getting back from that process. Kay Wiggins is the FT's private capital correspondent. Electric vehicles have reached another milestone. EV sales in Europe overtook diesel models for the first time this past December. In 18 markets, including the UK, more than one-fifth of new cars sold were powered by batteries. Diesel cars were just under a fifth. And that's according to data compiled for the FT by an independent auto analyst. The shift comes as drivers continue to choose subsidized electric vehicles over diesel. And diesel car sales have been falling ever since the Volkswagen emissions cheating scandal back in 2015. The global consulting firm Bain & Company is under fire for enabling state corruption in South Africa. The firm was cited in a report out this month on looting under former President Jacob Zuma. Trillions of rand were stolen from government coffers. The FT's Joseph Cottrell says the corruption peaked after 2014. Zuma was voted out in 2018. And it's in that period that Bain's work consulting for or restructuring the South African Revenue Service became a major part of what's been called state capture in South Africa. State capture has become a buzzword in South Africa. Joseph told us what the term means. Essentially, it refers to the capture, quote unquote, of public resources for private gain. And the revenue service in South Africa was a major obstacle to that for obvious reasons. Zuma, as president, appointed an ally as commissioner of the revenue service 
and along with that commissioner came Bain. And now this inquiry report has said that service was so well regarded, so highly effective, it did not need consulting in the first place. And yet, nevertheless, Bain and Zuma's appointee persevered. And essentially, it led to a purge. Uh, officials who opposed what Zuma's appointee wanted to do were removed. And essentially, the inquiry said Bain's strategy, formulation, its plans were used as the pretext to do this. Joseph, this report cites Bain in particular for its role in the corruption scandal. Was Bain the only global consulting firm involved? There is an entire rogues gallery of international professional services firms. McKinsey, Bain's peer, was also compromised by work it did for state companies that were also part of the looting under Zuma. Um, it apologised, it paid back fees. KPMG, it also did work related to the revenue service. Again, it apologised, it paid back fees. And many other international companies were also involved at various points in facilitating the looting. How has Bain responded to all of this? Have they defended themselves? Uh, they have not exactly been repentant. They've come out swinging, actually, and it's very different to how McKinsey, KPMG, and the others responded. Bain insisted that this uh, inquiry mischaracterized its work and that it did not in any way willfully or knowingly support state capture at the Revenue Service or elsewhere, despite reams of evidence in the inquiry that, for example, its managing partner in South Africa met Zuma on average every six weeks for a period of two years, was closely with a company, owned by an associate of the president, and so on. So do you see this report leading to any change? Zuma's successor, Cyril Ramaphosa, has promised big anti-corruption reforms. What's happening with that? They have really become bogged down. And um, many activists, uh, corruption fighters in South Africa, do fear that something like the Bain scandal could happen again, that a management consultant, particularly one with a, you know, a big global reputation, could manipulate state institutions uh, once again. Unfortunately, the, the key reforms recommended by the State Capture Inquiry, which includes setting up a dedicated anti-corruption agency, protection for whistleblowers, and other changes to procurement, many people expect these will take years to be affected if they are at all. So Joseph, what does this mean for Bain globally? First of all, Bain, alongside McKinsey, KPMG and other companies involved in South Africa's worst ever post-apartheid scandal, these are all big global brands and they all do major work in emerging markets beyond South Africa, from Saudi Arabia to India, all around the world. So wherever there is corruption, wherever there are weak state institutions, what has happened in South Africa will be extremely important to how these firms respond in other markets and how the people who oversee them will respond if there is ever a scandal like South Africa's state capture again. Joseph Cottrell is the FT's Southern Africa correspondent. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Petrol Yun, Counterpoint Value Fund Manager. The funds you manage had a phenomenal 2021. You've actually had a phenomenal five years with the Counterpoint Value Fund being the best performing local fund over this period. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah. Arguably with the market against your investment style, how did you manage to outperform? 
Well, there, there were basically two periods, uh, and bearing in mind, uh, you know, I'm, I manage this along with uh, a bunch of my colleagues, uh, so, you know, every, all the kudos shouldn't go just to me. We are a firm with a number of investment professionals, so Ray Shapiro has been helping me on the fund in the past, and when he was still here, Sam Huli also uh, helped manage the fund. Uh, and so going into, there were two, two things that helped the performance of the fund. Uh, the first thing was going into the coronavirus sell-off in early 2020. The fund was quite uh, defensively positioned in gold and tobacco stocks and those sort of things, which helped a lot uh, in terms of relative performance at the time. And then in about August of 2020, um, we started moving on a big scale into SA Inc., South African businesses, or out of offshore businesses into South African businesses, out of the golds, out of the tobaccos, out of the, um, the more offshore-focused businesses and into South African, what we call SA Inc., South African businesses. And specifically, uh, we made a fairly large move into small cap, small uh, South African companies, uh, and that move really um, uh, paid off very well during 2021 when those stocks performed fantastically well. Pete, bringing it back to March 2020, the coronavirus sell-off, You've managed money for a long period of time. Do you think we'll ever see opportunities like that again? Yes. Yeah, we will. I mean, these sort of sell-offs happen from time to time. Um, you can never predict them. Um, but when stocks get very expensive, um, at some point in time, those sort of things happen. And those are not things to be scared of and to be afraid of. Those are opportunities that present themselves um, for you to make uh, good choices in. And that's the thing you need to bear in mind when these sellers happen it's not the end of the world it's an opportunity um, to pick up good assets at cheap prices Is it time for investors to start tempering their return expectations for 2022 or are you a little bit more optimistic? Look, I'm, I'm still optimistic on returns available from emerging markets in general non-Asia based emerging markets the more the resource based uh, emerging markets like Russia Southern American emerging, Latin American emerging markets, South Africa specifically. Um, I'm, I think the returns from these markets are still set fair. Um, and it's actually quite simple. What sets the bar for longer term returns for markets are interest rates. So if you look at the interest rates in Russia, in Mexico, in South Africa, in Brazil, they're all between 8 and 12%. Uh, so that's sort of what you're working with. And equity should give you something in excess of that over time. Um, so, so I think the, the, those markets are well positioned. Where I would want to temper my, um, my expectations around returns is more in the developed markets in Europe and the USA where bond yields are negative or zero because um, that sets the bar quite low. Uh, and as a result of very low interest rates in those markets, I think equities have been priced quite highly because at the end of the day, the cash flows to the equity owners of the business are, you know, the, the present value of cash flows are determined by discounting all the future profits by the interest rate. And if the interest rate is very low, that present value sum is a big number. And that's what's happened to those equities. So I don't think there's room for them to, to for one to expect fantastic outsized returns from those markets over the next three to five years. The delisting trend is continuing unabated on the JSE. This trend isn't unique to South Africa alone, but the pace of delistings on the local bus is. Why is this yeah. the case? 
So I, I think there's a number of factors at work here. Number one, from a regulatory point of view, regulatory compliance accounting, it has become very onerous to be listed anywhere in the world. Um, not only South Africa, anywhere in the world, the rules and regulations have become very onerous. The accounting standards have become onerous and almost ridiculous uh, if, if you look at what accounting standards make you do these days, fair value accounting, all those sort of things. So, so that's the one set of pressures listed companies face. So you are seeing um, globally more and more delistings. Uh, the second factor, very important factor, is that all the money, or at the margin, a lot of the money is flowing into index funds, and all those index funds do is they buy the large companies. So smaller companies get completely neglected. So if you run a small company and you list it, you get no traction anywhere because the, the index funds are just not interested in buying small companies. And also in the asset management industry, up to fairly recently, money has been flowing to the large fund managers, not only South Africa, but globally. And again, they, not, they don't care about small companies. So at the margin, and prices are always made at the margin, smaller companies are getting no love from the market, either from index funds or from the large index-orientated fund managers. So the share prices are low. Uh, and so the third thing that is happening right now is that um, entrepreneurs are seeing the opportunity to buy out good small businesses which are neglected by the market at quite low prices and take them in private. Uh, and that is happening on a large scale in South Africa and it's happening in other countries as well. But let me simplify the question. You're a fund manager, but you're also an entrepreneur. You've listed businesses yourself before. Would you do it again if the opportunity arose? What are the benefits with being listed? Um, and none at this point in time, no. So the answer in short is no, I wouldn't do it again. I would, I would, uh, it's far better to operate in the private environment. Number one, you can do transactions are much easier to do. Because remember, if you list a company and you are dealing with uh, a private, other private business and you want to do a merger or a buyout or whatever, that other company, the private company looks at your stock market value and says, but hang on, you know, you guys are so cheap. We, you know, we're not interested or we, the relative valuation is out of whack because you listed and your share price is low. Uh, and they, in the private market, they put uh, whatever you know value on their business they want, and they, it's just out of whack. So you can't do deals with private companies because your valuation is so low in the stock market. Um, for a smaller company, there is no benefit to be listed at this point. There is no liquidity because the large funds and indices don't want to look at you, um, uh, and you can't do transactions. And the regulatory environment is onerous, and the compliance environment is onerous, and the accounting environment is onerous. So there is no attraction at all for a smaller company to be listed at this point in time. Bigger companies, if you're in the index and you can, uh, and, and you can uh, obtain a high valuation because the index funds are tracing your stock, yes, then you can use your stock um, as a means to do transactions, um, uh, and there, there are advan advantages to that if you're a big company. But for small companies, no, there's no advantage at all. Uh, and the private market is a much better place to be. As you said, in the small to medium cap space, JSC listed counters are being wiped out by foreign buyers, indicative of the cheap assets in South Africa. Not, I, sorry, if I can, they're not being wiped out. I, I think they are being, uh, they're being, uh, they're being uh, accumulated and being bought up by foreign investors and uh, local private equity investors because the valuation is so attractive. They're, they're, it, they're, being, uh, uh, you know, they're being bundled up is a better term to use. And in order for 
these assets to leave the JSC. The foreign buyers have to offer shareholders a premium yeah. to the pre-offer share prices. Do you have a special situations basket in your portfolio in which you identify businesses that may or may not be right for a takeover? Look, it's, it's very hard to make predictions or, or to forecast takeover uh, bids on companies. Uh, but the way I look at the portfolios I manage is uh, it's like a bundle of twigs. Um, so you have a whole bunch of cheap situations. Each one individually is cheap and it's probably cheap for a reason. Uh, and it could do very poorly or it could do very well if there's a bid or a buyout offer or if the fortunes of the company turns around or whatever. Uh, so each one of those individually is like a twig, it can break quite easily. But if you bundle those little twigs, those little situations together, you get quite a strong portfolio, which is what I believe the counterpoint value fund to be. Um, so without making any forecasts about potential bids or offers for a company, uh, I just buy them when they're super cheap. And, and the companies only tend to get super cheap when there's bad news around. Uh, so you can't put all your money into one and hope somebody buys it out from you at a premium because you just don't know whether that's going to happen or not. Pitch, you must be getting super excited. All the economic indicators are flashing red. Inflation, interest rate hikes, etc. Is this the Goldilocks era that we've been waiting for value stocks ahead of us? It feels that way, but then again, if you'd asked me, and you did ask me over the past year or two whether I felt that way, and the answer would have also been yes. Um, so there's been a lot of false starts, stop starts, um, but it does feel like there's a sea change happening in the market. I think broadly speaking, uh, global macro is very supportive of the value environment. Um, so I'd be surprised if in three year or five years' time we look back and value hasn't outperformed uh, quite strongly. Steinoff has become a really interesting story. Lots of corporate actions happening amongst the investee companies. Yeah. Mattress firm selling off a portion of Pepco, yeah. Pepco IPO, with Steinoff reducing its equity for cash. There's also more transparency with the 24 billion rand settlement. What's yeah. your take on Steinoff's value at the moment? Look, um, I can't get to 560. Um, not on the information I have at hand. I, I've looked at it closely. I, I think there's a lot of there's, it's almost like a relief rally that, um, that things are clearing up and um, things are coming to a level of certainty because the market hates uncertainty. Uh, so there's a relief rally happening in the shares, but it's very hard for me with information available to get to 560 for the equity of that business. It's, uh, that's a big number. And what's your experience with these companies that are embroiled in corporate fraud and legacy issues? It seems like more often than not, thinking Tongart, EOH, and even Steinoff, that these legacy-stricken businesses fail to come back to life whatsoever. Once investors lose trust, they run for the hills. Yeah, they do. They run for the hills, and um, you know they become neglected and out of favour. Uh, and I think, especially something like Steinoff, which is so popular and a big portion of most investors' portfolios, uh, that will be hard for it to get um, its old rating back again. It will, it's possible, but it will take a long time. Um, and there will be many starts, again, many starts and stops along the way. And, you know, we've seen it as low as below one rand, which was quite cheap. Um, and now it's 560, uh, five times that value. Um, I don't think it's that cheap anymore. Um, but it owns some good businesses. So ultimately... If the management team uh, play the ball well, I think they can, you know, have a very nice business going there um, and do fairly well for shareholders um, over the long term. I think it's quite possible.
And the same goes for the others as well. Uh, but what you do need is you need the old management to be cleared out. You need uh, a new thought process in the business. You need ethical business dealings. Um, and you need um, the right people in the, at the helm. Uh, and if, once those things fall into place, then you need time. And so all these businesses can get there if all those things fall into place. Lastly, Pitt, what's the biggest risk to your portfolio in 2022? Sure. Um, the biggest risk to my portfolio, I would probably say, is that I get overexcited or too scared of anything and try and fiddle with it too much. Um, the hardest thing to do when you manage money is to leave it alone. So I, I think that's the biggest risk if, if one starts getting too active in your portfolio. I'd, I'd rather just you know, sit on my hands, and that's a hard thing to do. So, yes, I would, I'd, I'd probably say that's the biggest risk, that I don't sit on my hands. The third business conference at the magnificent Champagne Sports Resort in the Drakensberg will be held from the 1st to the 4th of March. It's lining up to be the best so far. We've got a strong lineup of speakers. A single delegate cost is 7750 For couples, it's 12950 Book your seat by going onto the Business Investment Conference button on the right-hand side of the business.com homepage. See you there. Erin Richards, we are going to have a conversation over the next few weeks trying to find out more about the Constitution, something that you're passionate about. Alec, yes, I, I am and I, I always have been. The Constitution is, is what drew me to, to the law in the first place. And not just the Constitution, but the idea of helping to make the Constitution more accessible to, to the people um, and to, to demystify government, to demystify how it is that our society actually works, the mechanics of our society. So we are what is called a constitutional democracy. When I spoke with Helen Ziller recently, she said in the past, in the apartheid era, there was a sovereignty of parliament. Now there's a sovereignty of the constitution. What does that mean? The sovereignty of the constitution, Alec, was an idea to get away from the centralization of power and the abuse of power, to vest the judiciary with an oversight function over government and governance, and also to help us as South Africans attain a constitutional democracy. So when politicians get voted in, they often lie so that we give them the vote. And then once they're in, it takes five years later, they will tell us the same lies and we vote for them again because there's no better option. Hmm. From what you've said now, there is something that is an oversight on them which presumably will stop them lying. Well, the Constitution doesn't implement itself. It's a document that is meant to be utilized and invoked by citizens to create a transparent and accountable government. Somehow, many of us walk around with this idea that politicians are our leaders, inherently good-natured, well-intentioned, but unfortunately that's not the reality of how power dynamics actually work. And that's why the Constitution was drafted to give us as South Africans a tool to crack that nut open, to force government to be transparent, to force government to be accountable. But what's happened is because the Constitution has not been properly understood, it hasn't been properly utilized. And so now we sit with a situation where we're dealing with what we're seeing at the Zondo Commission. Mocheng Mocheng, I remember when he brought out the judgment against Jacob Zuma, and there was many people surprised because apparently he was an appointee by Zuma and he was going to defend Zuma. Of course, he didn't. He did exactly the opposite. Why was that so relevant for this democracy? 
We see a bit of a, of a repeat of the psychology going on at the moment. There seems to be a public perception that just because there is some kind of political influence in an appointment to the bench, that that necessarily implies that that judge will not bring an independent mind to bear on the case. But we've seen historically that that's not necessarily the case. We have judges who have taken oaths, and by and large, lawyers and judges take those oaths seriously. And just having political influence is not enough to show that a judge cannot exercise or has not exercised at any point in time an independent mind on the cases that were brought before him or her. And that's Pretty relevant right now uh, in the interview I had with Helen Ziller last week. She said that the minutes of the Cater Deployment Committee show that the two most recent appointees to the Constitutional Court were first of all selected by the ANC Cater Deployment Committee and then put onto the highest court in the country. The immediate idea that members of the public have is, well, these chaps were there to support the political ambitions of the ruling party of the moment and they've got to be kicked out. If we look at Mokheng Mokheng example, that's not necessarily the case. Maybe they're going to rise to the occasion. Alec, look, there are multiple causal links that are a problem with the idea that the judiciary is captured. And this unfortunately seems to increasingly be becoming a, a point of political contestation is the state of the, of the judiciary. And the public needs to be careful how they, how they assess that and the weight that they accord to that because we have seen minutes that show the CADA Deployment Committee recommending candidates for appointment. The fact is that if you look at those minutes, some of those candidates were appointed, some of them were not appointed. That hasn't come through. Mm. What has come through the CADA Deployment Committee gives a list of names, pushes them through to the Judicial Services Commission, Commission and they then are automatically appointed because the ANC has a majority on the JSC. Yes. But you say that hasn't been... No, it hasn't, it hasn't been the case. But just the philosophy then is uh, it, it needs to be unpacked because there's a perception in, in my mind and I'm sure in many people, many members of the public's mind mm. that this whole thing is a farce. Yes. Alec, there are definitely uh, problems with the way that the Judicial Service Commission functions at the moment. And that has been unpacked by numerous analysts, numerous lawyers. Um, and this is where Helen Ziller, I think, is correct to, to, to raise concerns. And she's, she's not the only one. The JSC does need to become more impartial. It needs to construct frameworks that are allowed to guide appointments. It needs to be transparent as to why it's recommended certain candidates and why it hasn't recommended others so that we all know what standard is being applied across the board. And we also need to look at somehow militating against this idea of political interference in, in the JSC because it is a problem and it is clearly a, a reality. But it's good that this debate has been sparked and we now need to have it. But just because there is an issue with the mechanics of how that body functions doesn't necessarily lead one to the conclusion of judicial capture. That is an extensive leap that is just not supported by the facts. Reductionism, simplicity. It yeah. is. And Alec, that, that's the thing about politics, is it's a, it's a blunting instrument. You know, politicians need to be concise and clear in the messages that they convey. But when you're dealing with something like the judiciary, a body that actually technically can't fight back because it's supposed to be removed. How do you mean it can't fight back? 
you have these broad allegations of judicial capture, judicial corruption, catered employees on the bench. Well, we have a lot of judges. Which judges are you referring to? You know, now you've plastered the entire judiciary. All those judges are now sitting with this hanging over their heads. And it's not just the judges. It's the public's perception of those judges that gets placed in, in, in jeopardy here. And those judges can't descend back into the political realm to say, I exercise an independent mind and decision X, Y, Z. That's just not how it works. Sounds very dangerous. If you take that to its logical conclusion and the public loses confidence in the courts because it believes that the, all the judges have been appointed by a political party that everybody knows is incredibly corrupt and we're going to talk a lot about Zonda yes. in the weeks ahead, yes. uh, then where do you even start believing that the law begins? Well, this is exactly why I would caution against politicians using this as some kind of campaign platform. The judiciary should be left alone. If there are issues with the JSC, reform the JSC. If there are issues with transparency, well, then pursue transparency going forward. But to impugn the legitimacy of the judiciary is very, very dangerous. And the reason that I say that is the, the judiciary is vulnerable in that it is dependent for its proper constitutional functioning. But like a bank, if the public doesn't trust the bank, there will be a run on the bank and the, the bank will go out of business. Correct, but, but the public has to maintain belief and faith in the judicial system. Mm -hmm. That's what the constitutional scheme envisages, is that the citizens use the constitution to hold their government to account. Okay, now arguably, we haven't done that all that well up, up, up to now, but that's the constitutional scheme. The second your citizens opt out and no longer have faith in the judiciary, the entire constitutional project falls flat because they're not going to use the constitution or the courts to target government and to address these issues of transparency and, and accountability. And this is the problem is that once you've lost public faith in the judiciary, it's going to take a lot of work to get that back. So these politicians have to ask themselves whether or not it's really worth it in the long run to destroy the legitimacy uh, and the reputation of the judiciary for short-term political goals. Yeah, you're joining the dots here. If you have a look at the big man of Africa kind of syndrome, uh, there the politicians rule the courts. Here in South Africa, we've gone for a different project, but it does appear to be under threat. This outburst by Lindiwe Sisulu, for instance, mm. Uh, which Acting Chief Justice Sonda has come back and aggressively responded to. But she wouldn't have said something like that if she didn't have a particularly good reason for believing it and people who think the same way. You know, there's been a lot of outrage about Minister Sisulu's comments um, and unfortunately it's just become terrain that the judiciary gets attacked. And this is, this is unfortunate. But it's an entirely different kettle of fish when you're calling the judiciary corrupt and captured. It's one thing to attack the judiciary. And I mean, I personally just found those comments to be blatantly insulting and just completely unnecessary. And, and I think that the, that the backlash is, is warranted. But there's another political side here that, that we're seeing specifically with, with Helen Zilla's comments, which is, this idea that the judiciary is just an extension of the ANC's catered deployment committee. And that's a very dangerous idea, especially when the facts don't support it at this moment. 
Hi, I'm Michael Apple. Welcome to this chat with Democratic Alliance Shadow Minister for Public Service and Administration, Dr. Leon Schreiber. Thanks so much for your time today. Uh, I'd like to jump straight in. You want the president of South Africa tried for perjury, Dr. Schreiber, why? Well, what we found, Michael, uh, from these minutes of the ANC's Cater Deployment Committee that we managed to obtain after almost a year and a half or two years of, of struggle now, uh, is that the, uh, the president of the ANC and of the country, Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, clearly misled the Zondo Commission when he testified about the reach and extent and influence of the ANC's Cater Deployment Committee. And the reason we can say this is because in those minutes that we got hold of earlier this month, it's very clear, unambiguous, that the ANC's Cater Deployment Committee, which uh, Ramaphosa chaired uh, prior to 2018, does discuss um, which judges should be so-called deployed to which uh, positions and, and goes as far as to specifically recommend individual names of judges that it wants in those positions. Now, obviously, the minutes also show influence in Chapter 9 institutions, government departments, state-owned entities. But what is particularly uh, important at this stage is that um, Ramaphosa very explicitly denied before the commission that the Cater Deployment Committee considers judges. He, he initially said, no, they, he's not aware of any discussion around judges. Then after a break, and uh, you know this is where Helen Sussman used to say, go and see for yourself, I was there, so I know that after a break in the proceedings, Ramaphosa actually returned to the stand and said he has to correct himself uh, because he's aware of once where that where uh, it was mentioned that there were vacancies, but then he was very explicit that there was no discussion about who should be appointed, who would be a good judge, who would not, and that is the part that we're taking issue with because clearly he would have been aware that that is an untruthful statement. Reminds you a bit of when President Ramaphosa had to come back to the National Assembly about the Bosasa money, doesn't it? Yes, uh, that's an interesting comparison. Um, so I think this case is more um, open and shut even than anything else we'd seen before, simply because we have written documentation in black and white that uh, what he said was not true. But I think there is a growing perception among South Africans that President Ramaphosa is less than truthful uh, on occasion. And I think specifically what I saw during his testimony at the Zondo Commission is that he was very intent on trying to downplay uh, and spin the ANC Cater Deployment Committee's influence as something being very benign. It doesn't really have any influence. It doesn't really discuss uh, many appointments of great significance. Um, so this particular statement is part of a bigger pattern where he, um, in my view, sought to mislead South Africans about the extent to which Cater Deployment has infiltrated every aspect of the public sector. And uh, it is, to say the least, extremely concerning that the president uh, not only seemingly chose to defend ANC cater deployment rather than come out with the truth in the interest of the country, but also that uh, he, despite having clearly received advice uh, during the break at the commission there, uh, still decided to make a blatantly misleading statement. And now, of course, um, as I mentioned in my statement this morning, the precedent created by the Zuma case comes into play, and that's where it, it, it becomes very interesting. Looking at the minutes of that, and let's be clear, it's a 2019 uh, Cater Deployment Committee meeting. Is that correct? Chaired by Didi Mabuza. That's correct. March 2019. 
What positions was this uh, Cater Deployment Committee interested in placing comrades in? So the broader analysis of the of the three years of minutes that we've obtained, so that's covering the period from May 2018 until May 2021, shows by our count 88 different state institutions, as I said, ranging from courts to Chapter 9 institutions like the Human Rights Commission, all the way through to government departments, and not only the top leadership, but actually uh, drilling down as far as, as far as deputy director general positions, um, so getting into almost middle management of the state. Um, but in this particular meeting that uh, that we are discussing now, in March 2019, the Minister of Justice at the time, Michael Masuta, uh, made a presentation apparently at the Deploy- Deployment Committee meeting. Then there was a discussion and a decision to recommend two uh, judges for the Constitutional Court, where there were two vacancies, uh, one position in the Supreme Court of Appeal, one position in the Labour Court and a position in the Northern Cape and Eastern Cape divisions of the High Court. And then interestingly, those minutes go on to express a view of the committee seemingly saying that um, the judiciary has too much power and that actually uh, perhaps uh, the the system has to be even uh, brought under bigger control by the ANC seems to be the message there. So that's what was discussed. That's what we have uh, black on white. And so the importance of this really is that even though for 27 years we know we knew such a policy existed, for the very first time in our democratic history, we have clear, irrefutable evidence of how far the tentacles of cadre deployment has spread. Does that render something like the Judicial Service Commission, the the JSC, a, a, a public talk shop, or is it truly there that the judges are, are actually shortlisted and chosen, or is that is that a smokescreen? And as you've pointed out, you have this deployment committee who at least is is talking about certain judges. Do the two not really match up here? Is is one a smokescreen and the other one actually calling the shots? Well, that is that is exactly the concern, and you can you can that concern exists for every position in the public sector because what you see through cadre deployment is the creation of a parallel appointment process. Uh, one, unlike the uh, legal appointment process, one that is not legally defined, one where there's no um, transparency, clearly it took us 27 years to get these minutes for the first time, um, and one which operates according to the personal opinions, views, uh, and considerations of loyalty to the ANC rather than to the country. And so that is precisely our concern with cater deployment, is that it entirely subverts the constitutionally defined um, appointment processes, the norms and standards and, and values and principles that are supposed to apply uh, to the public administration. And um, that is why we are very, very firm that this uh, practice has to be declared unconstitutional eventually. We have to outlaw it. Uh, and what we are busy with now, we view as uh, particular steps in a longer journey to make sure that we actually eradicate cater deployment because whether it's a judge whether it's a director general position, any person who applies or is being considered for a position by the JSC or any other selection committee uh, should have the fair opportunity where members of such a committee comes to the meeting with an open mind, not with instructions that predate that meeting from a political party. And therefore, we can end up appointing the best among us to these positions of power rather than limiting the pool to this very small group of ANC loyalists, uh, which is the effect of cadre deployment. 
Dr. Schreiber, how powerful is this committee on the face of it? Didn't it once make the president apologize to it and for what? Yeah, that is quite an extraordinary uh, tidbit from these minutes is that uh, at, on one occasion the president ha had to explain why he appointed members to a presidential advisory council on state-owned enterprises without consulting uh, the Cater Deployment Committee. And as you say, the president was very eager to apologize and say that it was due to time pressure that he had to actually make uh, an appointment, which is his legal right to make. Uh, the people of South Africa uh, vested that legal power in the president, not in the ANC's Cater Deployment Committee. And the fact that he can be made to apologize shows you just how how strong and the influence of this committee is. And it is not the only case. There are cases where ministers are scolded for not following so-called correct procedure, ironically being the, the illegal procedure in our view. Um, and, and you can see that there's a very clear sort of apprehension from ministers who attend these meetings that they must get approval, they must get sign-off. And in case, some cases, uh, the recommendations they make are overruled by the committee. And, and I think a striking moment from the, the, the Zondo Commission uh, was when the president was testifying about this and one of the evidence leaders put it to him that rather than this benign picture that the president was painting about uh, the, the committee making recommendations and ministers making the final decision, in fact, the minutes show that it is the ministers who show up with recommendations and the Cater Deployment Committee who makes the final decision on who gets appointed. And I think that is uh, exactly what is what these minutes show, and that is exactly what we have to get rid of if we want to build a capable state. And I suppose the individuals who are shortlisted, chosen, and placed by this committee, presumably they know who they owe their allegiance to. It's, it's to the party. Uh, the question is then, what is the quid pro quo or the expectation placed on an individual like that who has been catapulted by the party? What is that expectation, Dr. Schreiber? Well, if you look at the minutes, you see that um, repeated, repeated references to party loyalty. So um, people are regarded as cadres of the ANC, loyal supporters of the ANC, firm mem first supporters, members of the ANC, etc. You see this right throughout the minutes. So that suggests very clearly that the quid pro quo is that uh, in, in return for appointment, you must uh, promote the interests of the organization and presumably also align with its ideological goals, whatever they may be, um, and that that is um, essentially the criteria against which you are appointed, rather than, you know, the criteria which may be defined in the official ad advertisement. And we see this, uh, Michael, you know, any, anyone who's followed South African politics for the last decade would know that... Uh, Countless cases where public institutions are subverted to serve the will of the of the governing party rather than to serve uh, the interests of the country. And so um, for any person who who was skeptical about the idea that cater deployment exists and that it exerts this powerful influence in our state, uh, these minutes uh, really put to bed all of those questions because it shows beyond any reasonable doubt that a loyalty to the ANC is a defining criteria and any person would know then that if loyalty is uh, the basis upon which I can uh, uh, move forward in my career, then that is uh, the number one concern um, I, I, will, I will follow during my job. Just also to point out, um, we are continuing with our court case against the ANC, which we instituted last year, 
um, to try and get hold of uh, cadre deployment minutes predating 2018. So between 2013 and 2018, President Ramaphosa was the chairperson of this committee. Um, and uh, very, very conveniently, he told the Zondo Commission that minutes do not exist for that particular period. They're gone. Um, They're gone. But, but you know what is so striking is that uh, in the first set of minutes, as unbelievable as this may sound, in the first set of minutes for a meeting from May 2018, the first item on the agenda is the adoption of minutes from the previous meeting. So it is as clear as daylight that there are more of these minutes. Uh, and again, um, less than truthful, to put it politely, we believe uh, the statement about there not being minutes. So we're continuing with that case. And even should there be a situation where there's not uh, specific minutes, we have asked uh, the court to help us obtain everything from email correspondence, WhatsApp conversations for any cadre deployment committee groups that may exist, uh, any CVs that were considered. So we are confident that there's more evidence showing also, importantly, how the ANC may actually communicate with identified individuals ahead of their appointment. And that would be another crucial uh, piece of the puzzle. Now, you've referenced uh, Batibile Dlamini, the former minister, as an example of someone currently uh, charged with perjury and going through the court system due to the Sasa debacle. But honestly, I can't think of a single high-profile case in this country where somebody has actually faced the music for lying to the public. Can you assist me here? Can you think of one? Uh, not off the top of my head, Michael, but um, I can flag the two important precedents that are relevant to, to the Ramaphosa case. Because, first of all, there is the Batabilet Lamini matter, and it is a very important precedent because it shows that there's active legal proceedings against a member of cabinet, former member of cabinet, for the, for exactly this, that she may have perjured herself before a judicial commission of investigation into Sasa. So it is exactly the same situation uh, as pertains with the Zondo Commission. And then, of course, the other side of this is the the case that, or, or the, 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 the case that the, the Zondo Commission lodged with the Constitutional Court uh, against uh, former President Zuma, where you know they sought this order of contempt for undermining the work of, of the Commission, and they were granted that order. So we have very, very clear and very recent actually precedent now of uh, not only the Zondo Commission being activist and seeking to protect its legitimacy but also of perjury before a judicial commission actually ending up in court. So I think from a legal point of view, uh, we have a very, very strong case here. And now the ball is in the Zondo Commission's court. Uh, will they follow the precedent that they themselves created in, this, in the Zondo case? Uh, and will they ensure thereby that the commission's legitimacy is upheld by having the president account before the court for why he made this misleading statement in what I view as overall misleading testimony? Um, and also protecting the integrity of the judicial system because we cannot lose sight of the fact that we're not, you know, the, the misleading statement wasn't made about uh, any kind of appointment. It was made about courts and the judges to the highest courts in the land. And so I think there's a very clear responsibility uh, on the commission and also on the judicial system to take this very seriously in order to protect its own legitimacy and independence. Well, realistically, Dr. Schreiber, is this... Is this a Hail Mary request um, to the, the acting Chief Justice or the office of the, the Secretary of the Commission? Have, have they responded to you? So the letter was just sent this morning, so obviously uh, we've not received a response. Uh, but, 
If I had spoken to you two years ago about the DA's determination to get hold of minutes of meetings of the ANC Skater Deployment Committee, I, I'm sure most rational people would have described that as a Hail Mary as well. Uh, but, um, you know, through persistence and also repeated correspondence with the Zondo Commission, where when we couldn't get hold of those minutes directly from the ANC, we wrote to the Zondo Commission asking them to subpoena the minutes, uh, and then we ultimately got hold of the minutes through the Commission. Um, so we are uh, creative and we are determined, and uh, I do not think that this is something that, that can just be dismissed out of hand. Um, and as I say, we are really committed to seeing this fight through to ending cater deployment and also to holding President Ramaphosa, frankly, accountable for his role in this. Uh, because, as I say, he was the chairperson, and uh, without fear or favor, the DA wants to hold people accountable who played a role in state capture whether that be through associations with the Guptas or through cater deployment. Um, so uh, we'll see what the, what the commission says, but I can guarantee you this is not the end of the story. Dr. Schreiber, I want to ask a question more broadly about political parties in the country, you representing the Democratic Alliance. Is there something similar to the deployment committee within the Democratic Alliance? No, there isn't, Michael. And I mean, it is a fair question. It's a question that I've gotten a lot, and I'm happy to answer it, that there is no catered deployment committee, and there's never been one. Um, and, you know, if, uh, as far as I'm concerned, there never will be one in the Democratic Alliance. Uh, and actually, you can see the consequences of that very clearly where we govern. So this is not abstract or a highfalutin theory. It is, it is very practical, because there is a reason why the Western Cape government and uh, municipalities where the DA has firm majorities uh, are the best governed places in South Africa. And that is because appointments are made uh, in keeping with the legally defined, constitutionally defined appointment system whereby there will be selection panels, whereby the decision ultimately rests with the selection panel and the particular appointing authority. And there is no parallel system whatsoever whereby the DA will have meetings behind closed doors and then tell a premier or a mayor, hey, uh, you know, this is the person you have to appoint even before you start the appointment process. Um, so, no, it does not exist. And I think it's very clear in the evidence on the ground what we can actually achieve for South Africa if we can outlaw and uproot it in also in other parts of the state. And frankly, if that is a victory that we could secure in the, in the reasonably uh, near future, and we could get to a point where national government departments, at least, but also hopefully municipalities, start making appointments in line with the constitutional framework that we have. Uh, then we can start moving towards a situation of building a capable state. Uh, and that is exactly my motivation in this. Lastly, you're hopeful then that, uh, that the DCJ will actually make a pronouncement on the legality, I suppose, of this deployment committee in the final volume uh, of the, the state capture require, uh, inquiry report? Yes, that is a critical next step. Um, so we've got two more reports outstanding, and we are hopeful that in one of them, the uh, committee will confront this issue head on. Um, so that is why we are also, you know, as I said, we are we are taking initial steps now. We've referred uh, these appointments to the Public Service Commission. We've uh, singled out the issue of perjury, but we will wait for those final reports to see whether the Commission actually strengthens our hand uh, and gives us the additional uh, tools we may need 
to actually get this declared unconstitutional. Um, we also have the NCADA deployment uh, bill in Parliament already, uh, which, which I drew up, and it is waiting. It's a private member's bill uh, in our committee ready to go, and uh, both on the political side in Parliament but also on the legal side uh, from the Commission's report, we hope, uh, and in fact, <laughs> for the sake of South Africa, we hope, that there will be a finding very clear, unambiguous, that CADA deployment must come to an end. Uh, and I think that is a critical opportunity for South Africa to then finally start moving forward in a systematic way. Well, thanks for being with us today. And we look forward to being back in your company tomorrow. Same time, same place uh, from the Biz News team. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.